Well, don't plan to make a living from it. That would be good advice. <laughs> it would be a, a great thing. It'd be a great thing to like a lemonade stand for a kid. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Well, uh, I just wanted to get out of the way a few things before we got the podcast started. So, as always, we do have shirts for sale, portcitypythons.com, um, snakes and beer shirt, um, Port City Python shirt. We have new shirts coming out on March 1st. So, um, if you haven't seen those on our Instagram, some people got them uh, for the free giveaway. So, congrats to those people. And um, Amazon links are in the description of this podcast. All you have to do is click on the link, follow it, and shop as you normally would. And all the, um, I believe it's 10% off of some purchases, go towards the podcast to support us. And um, what else did we miss? Um, we're going to have Southern Carpet Fest. May 4th and 5th. There you go. I mean, that's pretty much it. We pretty much boiled down what it. we got going on. Uh, should we thank people for vote? Well, we already did that last week. Never mind. Well, thank you for all the people that voted for the reptile report, even though ooh, we didn't get it. Which <laughs> makes a lot of sense, but we'll try again next year. There you go. We need to get better so we can. We need to at least be in podcast, and then we can worry about video show also. Okay. All right. You down with that? Yes. So um, our guest today is going to be Kathy Love. You might know her from Cornutopia. You might know her from Corn Snakes, from Tricolor Hogs, from all different kinds of things. Um, I probably you probably heard me talk about. I was obsessed with her husband Bill's book. Not was referred to. You currently <laughs> I refer to in a bunch of podcasts. So if you haven't read that already, do that. And we're going to get a little bit of Kathy's side of his story. And her story, I mean, they intertwine, obviously. And so, Kathy, I believe you're from Wisconsin. So how did you end up in a traveling reptile exhibit in the southeast? Well, from the time I moved to Wisconsin when I was in grade school, I wanted to leave Wisconsin because it's way too cold there. <laughs> and when I was 23, I managed to escape <laughs> I was I was kind of looking all throughout my high school years and after high school uh, of some some place to live where it didn't snow basically and uh, my sister and I took a trip down to uh, San Antonio Texas where we got to meet Joe Laszlo and his roommate and that would have been soon after I got out of high school uh, in the early 70s and uh, uh, the uh, roommate who is Tom Vermersh, wanted to start a reptile exhibit and knew where there was an old trailer that we could refurbish and turn it into one. So I said, sure, <laughs> it's not in Wisconsin. <clears throat> and I went back up to Wisconsin and put my stuff together and I sold what I couldn't use and came down and, and we started up the living jungle and traveled wow. around. So Wisconsin. were you, were you into reptiles before this? Oh, yes. I was into reptiles since I was in, oh, let's see. I think I got the first one in eighth or ninth grade. Um, when I was in about eighth or ninth grade, I bought a garter snake from the local pet store for 50 cents. 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> Vladimir. And I kept them in my closet so my father wouldn't see them. Uh, but my father did see him eventually. <laughs> and he told me, oh, let's see. He said, you can't have any snakes now. Wait until you're 14. And then you'll like boys and you'll forget all about snakes. <laughs> so I came back and I said, I'm 14 now and I still don't like boys. Can I have a snake? <laughs> and so he finally relented. And during high school, I was able to get a few different snakes. Snakes were always the most exciting things to me because I just liked the way they move so gracefully. And I always kind of liked the underdog, the misunderstood, that type of thing. But I liked every kind of animal, cats, dogs, horses, uh, birds. I had uh, Amazon parrots, uh, anything I could get my hands on pretty much. Yeah, so if people don't know, Joe Laszlo, he was uh, in the herpetology department of San Antonio Zoo. Is that correct? Yes, he was the head of it for quite a few years. And uh, so during the time I was uh, traveling around with the living jungle, at least for the first part of it, uh, I moved into the house with Joe and with uh, I, my partner, Tom Vermersh. And uh, we were there for quite a while. And at one point I was dating Joe and we talked about getting married, but I could see it just wouldn't work as much as I liked Joe. So later on, uh, Joe became a really good friend of not only myself, but Bill, my husband of today. <laughs> wow. So it's how does that come together as far as you meeting Bill during the reptile exhibit? And also, how do you manage a traveling reptile exhibit? Well, when you're in your 20s and you're footloose and fancy free and you don't have any particular responsibilities... Uh, it's a lot easier to do than it would be any other time if you had, you know, kids and mortgage payments and all that kind of stuff that ties you down. So uh, it was a great time to do it. I really highly suggest that anybody who's in their 20s and isn't all tied down with responsibilities and kids go travel somewhere, somehow, as much as you can. And also consider if you want to live in the same place that you grew up in, because that's the time to do it. It gets a lot harder once you get older and you have a good job and, and kids and stuff, stuff like that. Absolutely. So what do you do? I mean, it's the 70s in a trailer in the southeast. How do you keep animals alive in those conditions? Well, we had a little travel trailer and it did have heat and air conditioning. Okay. Uh, we would go back. Eventually, we moved over to my partner Tom's mother's house and she had a big yard where we could park in. Uh, so we would go back in between some of the shows and spend anywhere from a few days to a few weeks fixing things up and, you know, doing whatever needed to be done on the trailer. Uh, but uh, as long as we had a place to plug in, we could uh, heat and cool it. And we did go pretty much all over the United States. Didn't do too much in the Northeast, but we were all the way from California to Montana and uh, we were up in Oregon and uh, I spent most of the time, though, in the southeast. Wow. So are you timing it to where you're um, in Montana, all that stuff during the summer, and then you come down maybe to the southeast during the winter? Yeah, I escaped from Wisconsin because it was too cold. <laughs> we didn't go to those places in the winter, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were up in, uh, we, we got to go up to the Rapid City, uh, South Dakota reptile place in the 70s. 
we actually so was uh, that place still up there who uh terry phillip i think is the director of it now or something um in south dakota do you know what i'm talking about yeah, we went there, and uh, Bill actually was with us and took pictures of them uh, tossing tiger salamanders in to feed all of the uh, the garter snakes that were just roaming around loose by visitors' feet. We were pretty surprised. People <laughs> didn't by it either. So, yeah, yeah, I would think that that would be pretty stuff. frowned upon by the public these days. <laughs> I doubt that they still do that today. Uh, I haven't been back there in decades, so. But it was the way that young people who didn't have any money could really get around and see all the zoos and meet all the zoo people. That was back before the internet and back when long distance phone calls were really expensive. So you didn't just have the kind of communication you did to now today. Uh, and it was a so great you, way to get to know people. Yeah, so you were literally off the map. You know, it's different today when you travel today. You can always talk to each other <laughs> one way or another. It's not quite like right. FaceTime back then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you're gone, you're gone. So it so was I, really yeah. great to meet people like that and get to know them. And then and then later on when when they started having things like IHS and things like that, uh, you'd get to know the, get to meet these people once a year. For people who've grown up with the internet, it might not be possible for them to really appreciate what that meant to us. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you about that. I think I have it written down. 1979, you gave a talk at the Third International Herpetological Symposium. So how did, you know, a young woman get the clout as far as to go up and talk in front of IHS who you know, you're talking in front of herpetologists and all the big name people. Well, we had great motivation because uh, we didn't have any money and they would give us a uh, free entry if we gave a talk. Oh, <laughs> so they needed you. Well, they, that was just you... the way they did it. And uh, so Bill and I said, oh, what kinds of things can we talk about that they might go for? And uh, I did mine on uh, uh, sexing snakes and making your own sexing probes because they were very, very expensive then to buy them. And uh, Bill actually gave a talk at that same one on an unsuccessful mating of eyelash vipers. So those were our tickets to get in for free. That's that's good. If you can somehow sell a talk on what didn't work, on you trying to breed something and not working. We should try that at the next NARBC. Let's see if we can offer up our failed snake attempts. Oh, no. we we'll enough. talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that hasn't been done very much and, and it's new. What not to do is sometimes almost as important as what to do. That is very true. I mean, if we had Boland's pythons or something these days. <laughs> we have a lot to say of what not to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So in 1979, you also split with Living Jungle, and then I believe you and Bill lived up in the Smoky Mountains doing a little reptile exhibit? Well, we had actually split uh, at the end of 78, I think October, and then in uh, March of 79, we got married. And so uh, another year, we're going to be coming up on our 40th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, so we're gonna we're thinking about having a big bash for that because that'll be exciting. So after we got married uh, in March, 
Uh, we did plan on going up and setting up an exhibit in the Smoky Mountains uh, for the summer, basically Memorial Day, Labor Day. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun and it was very uh, educating, but it was also a big flop financially. Okay, so you... So what was your next move after, you know, a little bit of a failure there? Well, let's see at the, uh, when we came back, uh, at the end of the summer, we, uh, uh, Bill had just made his very first ever sale of photos for a book. And it was for the, uh, Audubon guide to reptiles and amphibians. And uh, I think he got paid $1,500 for that. So we were flush. And we uh, had to look for a place to live, and our our only our only uh, requirement was that it had an acre or so, so we wouldn't have people on top of us because we knew we wanted to do things that other people didn't always like, and uh, and some place that was livable. Other than that, we were pretty open. And we knew people already all over Florida by then. So uh, we knew Tom Crutchfield over on the West Coast, even though Bill was from the East Coast, and that's where we had been staying before that. Uh, so we decided to go look over his way because we couldn't afford the East Coast. And we did find a place over there, inland a bit. Uh, so we were kind of there during the time that Tom started up his uh, first uh, his first business. And then later on, Bill worked for him for a while. And we, we lived in the general area around Fort Myers, inland from there, He's for most of our adult lives. Until wow. Now. So $1,500 started. You changed <laughs> your whole life. Well, for $1,500, it was the down payment on, a, we called it the Little House on the Prairie. It was a, a mobile home, not a real big one. And it was on uh, two acres. Uh, in this kind of grassy field that used to be vegetable fields out towards LaBelle, Florida, which is quite a ways inland from, uh, from Fort Myers. And that kind of started our, our, you know, herping and breeding and married life and, and everything else. Unfortunately, there were no jobs there and uh, we weren't making it financially anymore because we couldn't travel because we had all these animals so we were kind of stuck for a while about what to do to make money. And uh, although we both had some skills with reptiles and other things, they weren't very marketable. I had worked as a nurse's aide, but in order to drive our big old truck into Fort Myers to get a job at minimum wage, it would have cost us too much. So I, I got into this program where I went to school for nursing and I became a licensed practical nurse. And then uh, Bill about that time also got a job uh, well, he worked for Tom for a while, and he also worked for a tropical fish farm, a lot of tropical fish farms down there. So we did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And by 1987, uh, oh, maybe, I think we put out our first price list uh, with corns, and we were also uh, producing mice then, too. <laughs> Really? So what I have here. <laughs> His list of your life is just a little bit creepy. 19, 1983, you guys. Like, it's just weird watching him read off this list all about y'all's life. <laughs> what about 83? 83, it says you got two AML corn snakes, two anery corn snakes, and two snows. And that's what started your collection. 
that kind of started it. I think the very first babies that we ever produced of uh, Amel corn snakes were in 85 or 86 or something like that. And, uh, and that was pretty exciting because although they weren't as rare then as they were a few years before, they were still not common. And uh, so the first few years that we produced them, we didn't even really sell much of any of them. We just uh, traded them for some other things and uh, uh, diversified our, our, our stock and really got into the colubrids heavy. Uh, Bill's parents had loaned us enough money to build, uh, a, what was it, a 2,400 square foot building in our backyard. Uh, and when I say build it, I mean build it. Uh, Bill's got pictures of me helping him hold up the walls, and and we had a oh, wow. barn-raising party for uh, friends to come over and help set the roof trusses when it came to that. But uh, Bill had worked at a roof truss plant uh, before he met me, and his father was a real handyman. So Bill has actually done a lot of the building projects uh, that we've done over our lifetime, and he's pretty good at it. Really? And just for, I'm just curious, how much of an investment were those AMLs and anneries at that time? Oh, I don't remember how much we paid for them or even how we got them. But I do know that in the late 80s, when we, we were producing a lot of them, and we sold a few hundred lots to some of the big importer dealers down in Miami for $20 each in a hundred lot. And uh, of course, a whole lot more than that if they were just going in onesies and twosies retail. Wow. So it really, it was never that kind of gold rush money like came when the ball pythons came. Corn snakes were never at that level. Well, I do remember before we actually were producing them, I think I saw them on somebody's price list for $700 or something like that a few years before we produced them. $700? Don't forget, $700 could buy you a lot more back then than it can. Right. That's wild for a corn snake. Oh, I wish we were. (laughs) I wish we were in it at that time. Right. It was a pretty exciting time to be around because uh, back in the 70s and 80s, it was just really gaining a lot of momentum and it was kind of new and exciting and people weren't even exactly sure how to breed some of the more common species let alone the really rare ones and and difficult ones um and the people who were in it even though they might have been all over the country and even sometimes in other countries it was still kind of a close-knit group because there weren't that many people who were serious and it wasn't mainstream so you didn't have the mother with the seven-year-old kid who wanted to pet because it just wasn't that mainstream yet. Yeah, and was that the time that really importation started to come in heavily, heavy to Florida? And did that kind of aid in the building of, you know, Bill's Glades Herps and that kind of stuff? Well, it didn't start then. It had been starting, you know, way before we actually lived in Florida. Well, Bill lived there since he was 15 years old, but... I only moved there about the time we got married. So uh, the importers had been big even then. And uh, you had uh, uh, CITE started, what was that, 72 or something like that. So you already had some things going on. And then there was that proposal for the injurious wildlife law way back then. 
uh, when I still lived in Wisconsin even, and that did not go through at that time. So there were little things hitting us even back then, but not at the speed which they are now, of course. Right. So what were kind of the species that were commonly kept at that point? Um, well, I'm trying to remember. That was a long time ago. That that was a time when you could still go down to uh, uh, the various different wholesalers in Miami. What was probably really fun to look at, even more than the reptiles, was they would have, you know, monkeys and big cats for sale and uh, just all kinds of really exotic things that we didn't want to take home with us, but it sure was cool to think that you could if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's... Uh, and I think uh, there were a lot of imports for, uh, uh, like, uh, not only green tree pythons, but uh, emerald tree boas and... Oh, just all kinds of things came in. And uh, back when uh, Louis Porras had the shed down there, uh, he would get even more unusual things because the big importers got more of the mass pet market type stuff. And people like Louis Porras would bring in things that we've never seen before. And even back then, Bill was really into his photography. So we would love to go down there and, and see what they had there. And then when Tom got started, he would also bring in some really unusual things, sometimes from the Miami importers, and sometimes he would import himself. So we got to see a lot of cool things that most people that weren't in Florida didn't get to see. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, I mean, what's the difference between the internet age as far as if someone had something cool in South Florida, would anyone around the country know about it? Well, it depends on how well connected they were. You always had a few people that were kind of recluses and just got really weird stuff and didn't tell anybody except a few friends. And those people we tended to know because we've always been kind of outgoing and, and social within the reptile circles. And we've always tried to kind of talk to people and get people in touch with other people. So we usually really kept up on that stuff way back then. And <clears throat> being near Tom Crutchfield, made it even more so because he pretty much always knew what was going on with anybody anywhere with reptiles. So that was a, a real way to keep up. But people outside of Florida, they had to work at it, you know, without the internet and uh, without easy long distance calling, you had to pay for each one. Uh, you had to really want to know and be willing to spend the time and effort to find out if you weren't right there. Right. I I think I had read somewhere either in the Lizard King or Stolen World about like you guys in South Florida used to have like parties to when the Van Nostrums and Tom Crutchfield and stuff imported stuff. And then you'd all uncrate it there and then take what? your pick. Yeah, there were times uh, that I I didn't usually go down with Bill to the Miami things, but he's got some pictures down at some of the various uh, old importers down there. When uh, uh, all of the people that you've probably heard about, if you know the people back from then, they were all there. And he's got pictures of them all standing there. And, and uh, you know, everybody's trying to figure out what's coming in first and putting their dibs on it. I, I remember when uh, Tom used to bring in some, some Amazon tree boas, which at the time were not very popular with most people because I... Uh, it seemed like the people who had the money wanted emeralds because these were considered like the poor man's emeralds. But I always liked them for the same poor reason. man's emeralds. Still oh. is. Oh. 
Come on. I, but I like the Amazons because like corn snakes, they're extremely variable. And I just like highly variable animals that you have a palette of colors and try to produce something you don't already have. So uh, when Tom would get a bunch of them in, Bill and some of the other employees would be there. Oh, this one's mine. This one's mine. <laughs> so even back in the 80s, we were breeding Amazon tree boas. And uh, that was one of my fun projects, too. And eyelash vipers, another variable snake. That's awesome. So how did you differentiate what's your project? What's Bill's project? Do you, do they intertwine or did you always keep it separate? Well, back then, a lot of our projects were joint projects and, uh, and it was part of the business and, uh, and we did them jointly. These days, though, since we've really downsized since coming out here, I, I have my snakes, which are mostly some corn snakes and some tricolor hogs and a couple Amazon tree boas, and, and I've got some blue tongue skinks now, and uh, and and a couple of ball pythons. So I've got my my animals, and he's got his, which are mostly Arizona animals, uh, both venomous and non-venomous, and he keeps them mainly for photography because you can't breed and sell the babies out here. You can only give them away. Uh, so basically his, his snakes are in one section of the room, and my stuff is in the other section, and I pretty much know what he's got and he pretty much knows what I've got, but he couldn't tell you for positive exactly what I've got. And I, I'm not a hundred percent sure on a hundred percent of his animals, but yeah. <laughs> so now they're, they're separated and he does his thing and I do mine. Now, would you, um, maybe about early two thousands or so corn utopia, was that completely you or what was Bill's hand in that? Oh, um, well, at that point, in the early 2000s, Bill actually had some pretty good deals where he uh, was doing selling some photography. Uh, there were some little series of little how to how to keep pet books on specific types, not just Philippe de Vaugelis, but some other some Barron's books and things like that. And uh, he was doing pretty well, uh, photo selling all the photographs for one book on, on a specific species. And he had a lot of them already and he'd go out and take some others and, and then he'd make a few thousand dollars for it. It was great. So he would, and he was doing Madagascar tours also at that time. So he was keeping pretty busy and I was more starting to take over the animals, although he helped when he needed to. I, uh, but then why, you know, digital photography has been a, a double-edged sword it's it's allowed him to do a lot of things he couldn't do before, but it's also allowed the people who would buy content, uh, photography and such, uh, to get it for practically nothing because now everybody is a photographer because they can take 2,000 slides. And if one is good, it's not like they had to pay for film and developing for the rest. Right. So it's really killed the market uh, for photography. Mm -hmm. So as far as, cause you were mentioning, mentioning tours before. So um, when did you start traveling and how do you monetize that and do tours? Well, Bill started the, uh, the Madagascar travels when we were part of Glades Herp, which was from late 1989 until I think we sold out our share in early 1996. Uh, but in 92, he went to Madagascar for the first time and, uh, and he loved it. He's always been a more of an adventurer than I am. I, I like to travel too, but not as much as he does. 
Uh, so uh, after he went to Madagascar the first time, he said, i got to figure out how to get back there. I don't make enough money to pay for it. So he started offering tours. And for quite a few years, he went every year. I think he's been there about, oh, 12 or 13 times. Wow. I've been there twice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he took tours and it worked great. But about the time of the big recession, people just couldn't afford it anymore. And so he hasn't been back since. Right. Um, I mean, have you still, do you manage to herp when you go out? I, you personally on these travels? Uh, well, I did a lot more before. Now I'm already 65 and the old ankles aren't what they used to be. And so I don't do a lot of walking anymore. But we still go out road cruising and stuff like that. And Bill still does hiking. Bill's down in Paraguay right now. And uh, he's down there trying to uh, find some of the tricolor hognose to photograph both them, you know, different specimens and different sizes, and also the habitat they come in, and to find out more about that, which probably will hopefully lead to another article in Reptiles Magazine. I did one on them last year, but it didn't include a lot about the natural habitat. Now, I have heard something, but I wasn't sure um, what to make of it, but I believe there there's two different species of tricolored hogs down there, or how does that work out? Um, there, there's a bunch of different ones, and I've read through the taxonomy, and it seems to be a little bit in a flux. Uh, it, it has always been Lystrophus before for the genus, and now it's Xenodon. And there seems to be a bit of confusion about whether the ones that we have here, uh, for the most part, are uh, Pulker or Semisinctus. And they may even be the same. Uh, the taxonomists always work in mysterious ways <laughs> but there's some other so I guess that don't look like these uh but they're also not around much in this country and supposedly from what i've heard they're not as easy to keep mm -hmm. is it now is it frowned upon if you i mean if you don't necessarily know which one it is to breed them together or are you just trying to breed whatever you can get well from what i've seen in the u.s i they all seem to be the same species. Whether you call them semi-synctus or pulker, I think they're all the same. Mm -hmm. And are these animals hard to keep? Are they hard to get on the rodents or anything like that? Well, you know, back in the 90s when we had Glades Herp, we imported some wild-caught ones, and they did terribly. I, we lost some. Most of our customers lost them. They didn't eat. They did terribly. Uh, the wild-caught adults just, I, I don't know if it was uh, their feeding habits or parasites or what, but but a few of them made it and uh, kind of just barely hung on in this country. Uh, but the Europeans have been breeding them longer than we have. And this particular species does great. When they're captive-bred babies, I've had fewer problems with them than I do uh, baby corn snakes. Really? Oh, they're, they're so, uh, that's why I love them so much. They're <laughs> relatively easy they're short and fat which people seem to love anything whether it's ball pythons or hognose snakes they seem to like short fat snakes um, and uh, the babies are usually about five to seven grams when they hatch but uh they they mine started breeding before they were two years old they just grow like mad and most of the babies will start out on thawed pinkies a higher percentage than baby corns do uh, and the ones that don't usually will start out with a little bit of scenting, 
but I kept some Western hognails back in the 80s. And I eventually just lost interest in them because the babies seemed a bit of a pain to start. Um, I might try them again sometime, but I've always liked colorful things with lots of reds and bright yellows and mm-hmm. oranges and things like that. That's why corn snakes and Amazon tree bows have appealed to me. And so do these tricolors. They haven't been bred enough yet for a lot of uh, uh, recessive traits to show up. Some people have some that they think are hypoarthristic and possibly hypomelanistic. I'm not sure yet, but uh, and and there's some of the patterns are starting get, to get a little bit uh, messed up as they breed, and then they all mm-hmm. more like the zigzag corn snakes. I think that will become a thing through selective breeding. But I'm sure there's probably some other things like uh, amelanism out there, but nobody's happened to happen to get them right. I wanted to know if there's, I've heard that um, the females are super productive as far as they will double clutch, triple clutch, late clutches all the time, but they seem to be short-lived. They do seem to be a live fast, die young species. Uh, They breed at an early age. They, they uh, uh, grow really fast, incredibly fast. They're hungry all the time. And, uh, but but I haven't met anybody who's had them more than eight years or so. Mm. So they're not real long-lived. Now, if you didn't breed them or didn't breed them very often, maybe they would live longer. I don't know because everybody who has them wants to breed them. I guess yeah. as they become more yeah. common, we'll find that out. So are there any special exceptions as far as – I know that you moved to Arizona. Is there any exception with – these like Central American and Southern and South American species as far as humidity goes? goes. Oh, well, I had a lot of problems with my Amazon tree boas when I moved out here from Florida. I used to have quite a few of them and I I had a few generations in in Florida and I downsized everything when we left because I knew we wouldn't have a lot of room out here and and we're kind of semi-retired now. But um, the ones that I did bring out here uh, for one thing, there's no cypress mulch out here unless you want to pay a fortune for it. And uh, I tried different kinds of beddings, and I had some problems, and I lost a few of them. Uh, I think I finally have it figured out now. Now they're doing pretty well. I use cocoa bedding. And uh, actually, I've switched to cocoa bedding for everything, even corn snakes. Some of the corn snakes were having trouble uh, shedding out here with the aspen that I used always since Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. So I changed them to the cocoa bedding too, and and that really seems to work well out here in a dry climate. Now, how does your um, collection differ as far as numbers? What was your height of bo- or corn snake breeding rather, and where are you at now? Well, soon after I left Glades Herp, I had that would have been like in the mid nineties. I had, uh, well, I had not only corn snakes, but a lot of king snakes and milk snakes and obsolete rat snakes and a few other things. And at one point I was producing 3000 a year. And then uh, as it got closer to the big recession, I downsized because the market was not good anymore. And I was producing about 1500 a year. Uh, now, since coming out here, I just have a reptile room the size of a bedroom instead of a separate building. And uh, I think last year I produced about uh, 100 corn snakes. And uh, I, well, by the time all of my eggs are hatched from last year, I'll probably have produced about the same amount of tricolor hog. 
Wow, I mean that's a lot of times. Um, have you? Did you work as a nurse this whole time during this? I worked uh, just. You reptile business. Wait, wait, wait! One second. I'm sorry. Messed it up. Messed it up. So this whole time, were you working as a nurse? Only for a few years during the 80s. Uh, once we started Glades Herp, uh, I didn't need to do that anymore. I worked full-time at Glades Herp. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. So, so how did... You good? So when did you really come into your own as far as corn snakes go? And what were the kind of vanguard projects that got you there? When we first started... Uh, and the corn snakes were kind of the first thing, but very quickly after that, we got into a lot of other rat snakes and king snakes too. Uh, we were some of, if not the first, to actually have named morphs of, of snakes that weren't just a recessive trait like, say, Amel or Annery or something like that, but an actual named trait. Uh, I think some of the very first ones back in the 80s would have been our no white albino, which became known as Sunglow later, our reverse or albino Okiti, uh, the blood reds, which actually we renamed them. Eddie Leach started them and called them corn, corn gold at first. <laughs> blood, blood red. And, um, and then the creamsicles that Ernie Wagner got going up in, uh, in uh, Vancouver, Canada. So as far as I know, those were the first named morphs that weren't just calling out a single recessive trait. Wow. So what are you doing? Well, actually, we should probably hit on the fact that um, around 2000, I think you um, published the first corn snake guide. So what was the impetus for that? And like, were there any complete corn snake guides out there before? Oh, no, there, there wasn't. Uh, I don't think there was anything. If it was, it was one of those little TFH type small books. But uh, I believe our first one was at the end of the 90s in 98 or something like that. I can't quite remember. And the updated one, I believe we did in 2005. Uh, so when we did the first one, Philippe de Vosgely had started up his series. And that series was, uh, I think Bill called it the, the savior to pet reptiles. Because up to that point, it was pretty much those TFH, know your pet iguana and all that kind of stuff and they weren't real helpful uh philippe was the first person who ever did a series of individual species reptiles books that uh were written by people who actually kept and bred that book because the tfh ones usually some guy would write about poodles one month and write about uh salamanders or lizards the next month it wasn't a specialist in philippe uh, he has to be given a lot of kudos for that. Yeah, and how has change or how has breeding and keeping reptiles changed? I mean, how did you house them when you first started? Uh, we uh, we started doing it with the plastic boxes way back then in in the mid eighties. Um, some of the people out in California were some of the first people breeding numbers of colubrid snakes, especially some of the melt snakes and, and tricolor type things like uh, 
uh, gray bands and Ruth and I and stuff like that. So the guys out here were doing that sort of thing. They weren't too much into keeping corn snakes, but um, we kind of got some of the ideas from what they were doing. And then we changed them a little bit to be the way we wanted. And uh, back in, I don't know, 86 or so, when we first got that building, we set up all of our adults and babies in various different kinds of little shoe boxes and sweater boxes and things and, and made our own heat strip uh, with uh, the, the heat strip that's made to wrap around your water pipes up north so they won't freeze. And they have a, a thermostat built into it that keeps them just above freezing. So if you take that thermostat out, you can hook it up to uh, either a thermostat or a rheostat, fan dimmer, whatever, and Bill did all of that himself. And believe it or not, some of those very first ones that uh, we had back then, we still have sitting out here. I think we might even be using them somewhere. <laughs> and they work from the mid-80s. Wow. Wow. So as far as um, keeping corn snakes, um, what do you find as the most important thing to someone who wants to breed corn snakes either as a living or be very good at it? What would be some advice uh, getting into it? Well, don't plan to make a living from it. That would be good advice. <laughs> it would be a, a great thing. It would be a great thing kind of like a lemonade stand for a kid. Uh, <laughs> uh, do something on the side, kind of do a little uh, hobby business or something like that. But for the most part, uh, I, I don't make a full-time living at this anymore. I did back back in the 90s and early 2000s and in the 80s. But since the big recession, I haven't made a full-time living at it. Uh, but as far as just breeding them, uh, the most important thing is to make sure you got a male and a female and they're healthy. Mm -hmm. And other than that, if they see the changing of seasons through the windows, they'll probably do the rest themselves. And what do you think is the difference in the hobby as far as you know what everyone's working with all the breeding all the selling what's different in the market today than um you know when you were coming up in the 80s or 90s it is so different now um because of the internet mostly and the communications the fact that you can uh, uh, do skype calls and facetime calls and keep in touch with everybody on social media it's done a lot to cut out the middleman. It would have been a lot harder to start something like Glades Herp now than it was back before the internet. The internet was just taking hold when we left Glades Herp in, in the mid-90s. Uh, and we were just starting to get to the point where we were emailing out priceless instead of uh, sending out 5,000 of them every month by hand, you know, uh, writing them, printing them, writing them. We did all that uh, 5,000 of them every month in the 90s. But by the time we left, we were starting to send them out uh, by email, and things were changing so fast. I, and, of course, the whole hobby has changed because it's now mainstream. And there's been good things and there's been bad things about that. It, it's definitely not all of one or the other. Right. I mean, I don't understand how you guys were able to buy all these snakes by, like, postcards that didn't even have pictures. <laughs> oh, well, that's another big thing. Back then, nobody ever expected a picture of a snake because that would have cost a fortune. 
and you would have had to mail them or something. I don't know. But that just, they went by descriptions. And that, that's why people like Louis Porras with The Shed was able to do well because his descriptions were so accurate. And if anything, he would under-describe them. And then some of the other dealers would, uh, you know, just go overboard and, and you didn't know exactly what you were going to get. But that all went to reputation back then. You didn't want to buy. Yeah, I... Wait, sorry, I was topping you. I have a question related to that. I haven't asked one question. Um, so it's interesting that she said people who under-described were kind of respected. I thought without, you know, the benefit of pictures, you would want, like, you'd get really, really creative Tom in your description. Tom really creative. You have to see some of them. Okay, I would love to we'll see some to of them. Some. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It, it was. And, and of course, some people really like that, you know, if it's fire engine red and turquoise blue and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it does help to sell stuff. But I guess different different things for different people. I always liked the way uh, if I bought something from uh, Louis Porras and it would come in and I'd go, wow, I didn't think it was going to be that nice. It's uh, This is great. But uh, people tended to do whatever worked. And if the uh, creative descriptions work, then that's what you do. Now, was there any importance put upon like what we would consider mutations or looks like ball pythons coming in looking weird or other things? Were they just called aberrants? Did anyone care? Care? Well, I think a few people, a few serious people would grab things out of, uh, you know, the big groups of stuff and hold them back. But most of the people didn't weren't thinking in that farmer mentality yet. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't until they started having some albinos and things like that show up like like for instance the albino burmese kind of got the craze started that you could make big money for some something like that and then when the first uh, ball pythons came it was even more so because not everybody can house adult burmese but anybody could house adult ball pythons so until those things came and the money was big i think a lot of people didn't think about it we colubrid breeders, on the other hand, I we did think about those sort of things. And I remember going down to Pet Farm and going through the big, big bins of corn snakes, wild-caught corn snakes, and seeing that so many of them caught right around uh, Dade County had that kind of gray band look to it. Uh, the nicest ones had these very silvery gray bands and uh, very orange I, I, you know, the contrast was really nice, like a nice gray band king snake. So we started pulling them out every time we went down there and got the best ones and selectively bred them. And uh, we started calling them Miami face corn snakes. So I didn't know that. So were, you know that were you the originator of the Miami face corn snake? Yeah, Mother Nature originated them, but we improved them. <laughs> <laughs> And then as far as I know, you have a line of Okatia as well. When did that come about? About. Well, that was uh, that was back when we very first started in the 80s. We had gone up to that area in Jasper County, South Carolina, and uh, we did find a few ourselves. But we started trading with other people who at that time also collected their own. And so they were close to the wild caught ones. Uh, and then I started putting the lines together and selectively breeding them. Most of the wild caught ones or the first generation ones uh, had the lar the uh, the dark uh, lines going down their back. That was very typical, almost yellow rat looking. 
and they were they get very dark, but they did have the big blotches and the nice contrast and everything. Uh, so it took some selective breeding to breed out those traits that we considered undesirable and uh, keep the traits that everybody liked. And now anybody who's breeding a lot of Okatee corns for a long time has some that your average person who wants an Okatee will say, oh, I like the natural ones like Okatee, but they don't really. If they went over to Jasper County and caught a corn snake, it would not look like the ones that people are producing today because we've gotten rid of the undesirable traits and accentuated the desirable. So they don't look like mother nature anymore too much. Yeah, we are, we are as modern corn keepers. We are really lucky to be standing on the shoulders of (laughs) people like you who did it for 20 years before we even started doing this. So like we already have a crop of amazing looking animals without doing all the hard work and only spending like 60 bucks. It is amazing how the changes are, and I feel so lucky to have been there to see it almost from the beginning, because back in the 70s, when we were traveling with our traveling reptile exhibit, the people, mostly out here, out in California, were so new at it, and that's when Joe Laszlo had his Coca-Cola machine and said, you've got to keep them cool, man, and he was experimenting with winter cooling. Whereas when I was in Wisconsin and I got to know the uh, curator of the reptiles at the zoo there, and I asked him how to breed reptiles, because even back in high school, I wanted to breed reptiles. He said, well, you can't really do it on a regular basis because in order to breed them, you got to get them cool. And if you get them cool, they'll catch colds and die. So it's luck, you know, if you can do it. This was the late 60s to 70 or so. It's just going to be a lucky happenstance now and then. You can't really do it on a regular basis. And that's where we came from in the late 60s to in the mid-70s, these guys out in California doing it, Joe Laszlo doing it, and we got to travel and see them do it when most of the rest of the country didn't have any idea. And then we got to bring that back to Florida and do it ourselves. So I really feel lucky to have been a part of that. That is wild. So... One last thing to hit on. So you're looking at the two of us. I'm 26. How old are you? 24? How old am I? You're 24. Yes. And what would you say to people looking to live, you know, a reptile field? She already life? told us to make a lemonade stand of it. She already told us. <laughs> But what what kind of advice would you give to young people starting off who want to lead a life filled with reptiles (laughs) and reptile fun? (laughs) Well, I would say, um, depending on whether you want to pursue pursue an academic, uh, you know, biology type thing, or uh, work in a zoo or work in a museum or work in a university, Uh, There's always a lot of competition for those jobs, and they're not highly paid compared to other jobs with similar uh, requirements for training. Uh, But I've got friends who do that, and they love it, and they wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, On the other hand, if you want to do it as a business, I would say if you want to go to school, don't take so many biology classes as take business classes, because most of the people who have done it, including us, Uh, most of us had more failures in the business part of it than in the reptile raising part of it. The reptile raising part of it, you kind of get by doing and learning and reading and meeting other people, whereas the business part, 
doesn't always come as naturally. So I would say take those business classes and maybe consider getting a higher paid job and doing it as a hobby that might make you some money occasionally. Yeah, I think that's good advice because I'm not about to quit our jobs and do it full time. You know, if it's something that happens throughout time as far as us working and being stable and then slowly grow this business so we don't have to depend on eating, (laughs) you know, on snakes. I mean, that's at least the route that I think we're taking more so. Yeah, if you can get a good job that uh, that you enjoy at least somewhat and that pays the bills, then you can really afford to do what you want as the reptiles as a hobby. I always wanted to do some kind of an animal-related business, even back in high school. I, I didn't know what it would be. I was into horses and, and uh, cats and dogs and reptiles and all kinds of stuff. I thought maybe I would get into dog grooming. When I was real young, I wanted to be a veterinarian until I found out how much math I would have to do <laughs> science. And that was always my subject I didn't like. So I said, nope, not going to be a veterinarian. Uh, and then uh, I always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. And I thought, well, maybe I'll be a dog groomer. You know, that would be an animal related thing. So there's a lot of different animal related things. I had a pet shop. Uh, just out of high school when I still lived in Wisconsin. And it was kind of a part-time business. I worked as a nurse's aide a night shift, and I ran my little pet shop during the daytime. Never made any money, but I learned a lot. Uh, so I always had some sort of a business going, even though a lot of them didn't make much money. And if you have wow. that entrepreneurial wow. push, you'll probably want to do something, whether it's reptiles or others, uh, whether it becomes a full-time business or not, who knows? Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea as such a young person. I feel like that doesn't happen these days. You don't just own your own store or anything right. like that. Well, it was just a little storefront. <laughs> and uh, and it was very cheap because it was off the main street in my small town in Wisconsin. It was funny. It was uh, It was a shop that was adjacent to a music store where they sold musical instruments and sheet music and stuff like that. And we had this display window that uh, it seemed like two very separate stores, but I guess there was some sort of little hole because I had a bunch of baby iguanas in my window uh, and, you know, a display thing. And the people from the music store came over holding a couple of baby iguanas and saying I had to figure out where the hole was and patch it. (laughs) That's always nice for the neighbors. So, Kathy, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for being on. I had a last question. And go a question. Then we'll Why would you do that? Sorry, thank you. You knew I had over. a question. I forgot. Um, so earlier you brought up that, you know, when you got started in it, it wasn't very mainstream. Like it was just a small little group. And you also talked about how now it is very mainstream. And, you know, seven-year-old kids are getting it all over the place. Do you like the more mainstream or do you kind of wish it went back to a more reserved group? You know, I've talked about that same question with so many people over the years and, and I hear so many uh, reptile friends on Facebook lamenting that it is mainstream and, and that there's a lot more personality types and egos and people hating people because of this, that, or the other thing, some of it legitimate, some of it not. And um I guess on the whole, I kind of like it, and I kind of like the whole social media thing. 
I, I go on Facebook quite a bit and I, I've got the limit of 5,000 Facebook friends, most of whom I don't really know. But if they're reptile people, uh, I usually accept them on whenever I have space because uh, and some of them agree with me on things, some disagree with me. But it's uh, it's just been fun, you know, knowing so many different types of people that I never would have gotten to know in my normal day-to-day life uh, just because we share that common bond with the reptiles. And I also have friends from all over the world, and I've gone to visit them sometimes, uh, not lately, but at various times. Uh, as a matter of fact, Bill is going visiting a guy in Paraguay that he met on Facebook, and uh, he'll get to meet him in real life. So you know, that wouldn't have been possible. Well, we did have some friends that we had met through other ways. Uh, then we went to visit some Russian friends back in the nineties and things like that, but it was a lot harder to do back then and you couldn't do it as frequently. So on the whole, it's more good than bad. Yeah. So that kind of reminds me of a question that I wanted to ask you really, really bad. um, So you guys actually housed foreign exchange students how did their parents feel about having snakes all around them? And how did they feel? Well, they were surprisingly happy with it. And we were sure to correspond with them beforehand and tell them, you know, what they were. And, and uh, we looked specifically for students who were into animals and nature and stuff like that. And one of my students I uh, was from Latvia in uh, in Eastern Europe, in the in the Baltics, and uh, the reason we chose her was because she had an axolotl for a pet, and she loved reptiles and animals and nature, and uh, uh, we thought, boy, you know, this is somebody that we could really get along with. And from the time she got over, she just wanted to just live with the animals and just loved them, and that was back in uh, oh, it must have been about ninety four or something like that. And now uh, she and her husband and her two boys have been over here to uh, see us a couple times out here in Arizona. And they recently brought some, bought some property uh, down the street from us. Whoa. So Whoa. some of these uh, relationships have lasted a lifetime. And that she's not the only one. We keep in touch with our Russian students and uh, several of the others. Uh, some of them have moved here. Some we've gone to visit over there. Uh, if anybody wants to kind of get to know someplace else in the world and you can't afford to travel there yourself, get an exchange student and bring their perspectives here. And then you'll feel like you have family in that other country. And when you do go visit it, you won't be going as a tourist. You'll be going as a family member. Wow. That's crazy. I never really thought of it that way. And I never really knew anyone who like took in other kids, (laughs) like as their own as far as, um, you had a lot of snake babies, but it seems like you like kind of adopted kids through the exchange program. Well, we never had any uh, student, any, any kids of our own biologically. And uh, back when we were that age, I, I wasn't that interested in having our own kids. And I was more interested in starting our own business. And we didn't make enough money to do both. Uh, but I always figured there were enough kids in the world, and I had a hand in raising my brothers and sisters. So I, when, when we started getting the exchange student, it kind of fulfilled that niche of feeling like you had kids of your own now, even though they weren't your biological kids. And for some of them, it was just coming for a semester, a year, and not keeping in close t- touch. But others, it was like 
having them become part of our family. In some cases, their parents or part of their family members came and visited us either during the time they were here or later on. And uh, uh, most of them, I think, we've probably either gone to visit them or they've come to visit us after it was over. And now with Facebook, we keep in touch with several of them and we see pictures of them and their kids and their husbands and uh, it, it's been a great experience that I highly recommend to anybody who's who has even the slightest interest. That's that's amazing. So I'm always surprised at that you are still active among the coordinate groups and everything. So um, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with can you? They get in touch with you. Well, you can always send me a Facebook message. Uh, you can email me. Uh, I do go on most of those corn snake books uh, um, forums. There's there's three or four of them in, in colubrid forums and things like that. So if you go on any of those that I'm a member of, you can always just tag me in the post. And uh, I often join discussions because somebody tagged me in it. Uh, I, I'm always interested in meeting compatible people. That is that is that is awesome. I want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your night and for hanging out with us for a little while. And um, if there's anything else you want to go out there, go for it. Well, thanks a whole bunch for inviting me. And uh, uh, maybe I'll meet some new and interesting people because of it. Absolutely. So guys, poorcitypythons.com from the ground up podcast available on download. What do you got? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Thank you guys so much for watching. So much so for, watching. Much for so listening. Much for listening. Uh, thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.